Wondering how to make sure your favorite Bedtime Stories podcast can keep making new episodes? The answer is elementary, my dear listener. If you're enjoying the podcast and never miss an episode, we invite you to become a Spotify supporter through the link in the show notes. Your support helps us cover the costs of creating this podcast and ensures we can continue bringing you the best Sherlock Holmes bedtime experience, completely free. So, sleep easier by clicking the Support This Podcast link in the show notes and become a Spotify supporter today. Welcome to the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast. Each episode is a section from a classic, comforting Sherlock Holmes story with relaxing music to help you fall asleep. If you like the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast, please follow us on Spotify and YouTube. These are great zero-cost ways to support the podcast. Please leave a five-star rating for the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and press the like button on YouTube. If you have comments or suggestions for the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast, please leave a review with your thoughts. There are a few ways to do this. On Spotify, leave a comment in the episode's Q&A under the question, What did you think about this episode? On YouTube, leave a comment on an episode video. And on Apple Podcasts, write a review for the show. We do read every review and comment and want to make sure this podcast helps you get a good night's sleep. And finally, please follow Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories on Instagram. We post about upcoming episodes, fun facts from the world of Sherlock Holmes, and tips to help you get a good night's sleep. Again, it's Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories on Instagram. Thank you for joining us this evening. Now it's time to relax. Let your body fall into a comfortable position in your bed and drift gently into a state of total relaxation with tonight's story. The Red-Headed League continued. Sherlock Holmes was not very communicative during the long drive and lay back in the cab humming the tunes which he had heard in the afternoon. We rattled through an endless labyrinth of gas-lit streets until we emerged into Farrington Street. We are close there now, my friend remarked. This fellow Merriweather is a bank director and personally interested in the matter. I thought it as well to have Jones with us also. He is not a bad fellow, though an absolute imbecile in his profession. He has one positive virtue. He is as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he gets his claws upon anyone. Here we are and they are waiting for us. We had reached the same crowded thoroughfare in which we had found ourselves in the morning. Our cabs were dismissed and following the guidance of Mr. Merriweather, we passed down a narrow passage and through a side door, which he opened for us. Within, there was a small corridor, which ended in a very massive iron gate. 
This also was opened and led down a flight of winding stone steps which terminated at another formidable gate. Mr. Merriweather stopped to light a lantern and then conducted us down a dark, earth-smelling passage and so, after opening a third door, into a huge vault or cellar which was piled all round with crates and massive boxes. You are not very vulnerable from above, Holmes remarked as he held up the lantern and gazed about him. Nor from below, said Mr. Merriweather, striking his stick upon the flags which lined the floor. Why, dear me, it sounds quite hollow, he remarked, looking up in surprise. I must really ask you to be a little more quiet, said Holmes severely. You have already imperiled the whole success of our expedition. Might I beg that you would have the goodness to sit down upon one of those boxes and not to interfere? The solemn Mr. Merriweather perched himself upon a crate with a very injured expression upon his face, while Holmes fell upon his knees upon the floor and with a lantern and a magnifying lens began to examine minutely the cracks between the stones. A few seconds sufficed to satisfy him, for he sprang to his feet again and put his glass in his pocket. We have at least an hour before us, he remarked, for they can hardly take any steps until the good pawnbroker is safely in bed. Then they will not lose a minute, for the sooner they do their work, the longer time they will have for their escape. We are at present, Doctor, as no doubt you have divined, in the cellar of the city branch of one of the principal London banks. Mr. Merriweather is the chairman of directors, and he will explain to you that there are reasons why the more daring criminals of London should take a considerable interest in this cellar at present. It is our French gold, whispered the director. We have had several warnings that an attempt might be made upon it. Your French gold? Yes. We had occasion some months ago to strengthen our resources and borrowed for that purpose 30,000 Napoleons from the Bank of France. It has become known that we have never had occasion to unpack the money and that it is still lying in our cellar. The crate upon which I sit contains 2,000 Napoleons packed between layers of lead foil. Our reserve of bullion is much larger at present than is usually kept in a single branch office, and the directors have had misgivings upon the subject. Which were very well justified, observed Holmes. And now it is time that we arranged our little plans. I expect that within an hour matters will come to a head. In the meantime, Mr. Merriweather, we must put the screen over that dark lantern. And sit in the dark. I am afraid so. I had brought a pack of cards in my pocket and I thought that 
As we were a party carry, you might have your rubber after all. But I see that the enemy's preparations have gone so far that we cannot risk the presence of a light. And first of all, we must choose our positions. These are daring men, and though we shall take them at a disadvantage, they may do us some harm unless we are careful. I shall stand behind this crate, and do you conceal yourselves behind those? Then, when I flash a light upon them, close in swiftly. If they fire, Watson have no compunction about shooting them down. I place my revolver cocked upon the top of the wooden case behind which I crouched. Holmes shot the slide across the front of his lantern and left us in pitch darkness, such an absolute darkness as I have never before experienced. The smell of hot metal remained to assure us that the light was still there, ready to flash out at a moment's notice. To me, with my nerves worked up to a pitch of expectancy, there was something depressing and subduing in the sudden gloom and in the cold, dank air of the vault. They have but one retreat, whispered Holmes. That is back through the house into Saxe-Coburg Square. I hope that you have done what I asked you, Jones. I have an inspector and two officers waiting at the front door. Then we have stopped all the holes. And now we must be silent and wait. What a time it seemed. From comparing notes afterwards, it was but an hour and a quarter, yet it appeared to me that the night must have almost gone and the dawn be breaking above us. My limbs were weary and stiff, for I feared to change my position, yet my nerves were worked up to the highest pitch of tension, and my hearing was so acute that I could not only hear the gentle breathing of my companions, but I could distinguish the deeper, heavier in-breath of the bulky Jones from the thin, sighing note of the bank director. From my position, I could look over the case in the direction of the floor. Suddenly, my eyes caught the glint of a light. At first, it was but a lurid spark upon the stone pavement. Then it lengthened out until it became a yellow line, and then, without any warning or sound, a gash seemed to open, and a hand appeared, a white, almost womanly hand, which felt about in the center of the little area of light. For a minute or more, the hand, with its writhing fingers, protruded out of the floor. Then it was withdrawn as suddenly as it appeared, and all was dark again, save the single lurid spark which marked a chink between the stones. Its disappearance, however, was but momentary. With a rending, tearing sound, one of the broad, white stones turned over upon its side and left a square, gaping hole through which streamed the light of a lantern. Over the edge there peeped a clean-cut, boyish face which looked keenly about it, and then, with a hand on either side of the aperture, drew itself shoulder-high and waist-high until one knee rested upon the edge. 
In another instant, he stood at the side of the hole and was hauling after him a companion, lithe and small like himself, with a pale face and a shock of very red hair. It's all clear, he whispered. Have you the chisel and the bags? Great Scott, jump, Archie, jump, and I'll swing for it. Sherlock Holmes had sprung out and seized the intruder by the collar. The other dived down the hole, and I heard the sound of rending cloth as Jones clutched at his skirts. The light flashed upon the barrel of a revolver, but Holmes' hunting crop came down on the man's wrist, and the pistol clinked upon the stone floor. It's no use, John Clay, said Holmes blandly. You have no chance at all. So I see, the other answered with the utmost coolness. I fancy that my pal is all right, though I see you have got his coattails. There are three men waiting for him at the door, said Holmes. Oh, indeed, you seem to have done the thing very completely. I must compliment you. And I you, Holmes answered. Your red-headed idea was very new and effective. You'll see your pal again presently, said Jones. He's quicker at climbing down holes than I am. Just hold out while I fix the derbies. I beg that you will not touch me with your filthy hands, remarked our prisoner as the handcuffs clattered upon his wrists. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. Have the goodness also when you address me always to Caesar and please. All right, said Jones with a stare and a snigger. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs where we can get a cab to carry your highness to the police station. That is better, said John Clay serenely. He made a sweeping bow to the three of us and walked quietly off in the custody of the detective. Really, Mr. Holmes, said Mr. Merriweather as we followed them from the cellar. I do not know how the bank can thank you or repay you. There is no doubt that you have detected and defeated in the most complete manner one of the most determined attempts at bank robbery that have ever come within my experience. I have had one or two little scores of my own to settle with Mr. John Clay, said Holmes. I have been at some small expense over this matter, which I shall expect the bank to refund. But beyond that, I am amply repaid by having had an experience which is in many ways unique, and by hearing the very remarkable narrative of the Red-Headed League. You see, Watson, he explained in the early hours of the morning as we sat over a glass of whiskey and soda in Baker Street. 
It was perfectly obvious from the first that the only possible object of this rather fantastic business of the advertisement of the League and the copying of the encyclopedia must be to get this not overbright pawnbroker out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but really it would be difficult to suggest a better. The method was no doubt suggested to Clay's ingenious mind by the colour of his accomplice's hair. The four pounds a week was a lure which must draw him, and what was it to them who were playing for thousands? They put in the advertisement. One rogue has the temporary office, the other rogue incites the man to apply for it and together they managed to secure his absence every morning in the week. From the time that I heard of the assistant having come for half wages, it was obvious to me that he had some strong motive for securing the situation. But how could you guess what the motive was? Had there been women in the house, I should have suspected a mere vulgar intrigue. That, however, was out of the question. The man's business was a small one, and there was nothing in his house which could account for such elaborate preparations and such an expenditure as they were at. It must then be something out of the house. What could it be? I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. The cellar. There was the end of this tangled clue. Then I made inquiries as to this mysterious assistant and found that I had to deal with one of the coolest and most daring criminals in London. He was doing something in the cellar, something which took many hours a day for months on end. What could it be once more? I could think of nothing save that he was running a tunnel to some other building. So far I had got when we went to visit the scene of action. I surprised you by beating upon the pavement with my stick. I was ascertaining whether the cellar stretched out in front or behind. It was not in front. Then I rang the bell and as I hoped the assistant answered it. We have had some skirmishes, but we had never set eyes upon each other before. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was what they were burrowing for. I walked round the corner, saw the city and suburban bank abutted on our friend's premises and felt that I had solved my problem. When you drove home after the concert, I called upon Scotland Yard and upon the chairman of the bank directors, with the result that you have seen. And how could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight? I asked. Well, when they closed their league offices, that was a sign that they cared no longer about Mr. Jabez Wilson's presence. In other words, that they had completed their tunnel. 
but it was essential that they should use it soon as it might be discovered or the bullion might be removed. Saturday would suit them better than any other day as it would give them two days for their escape. For all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight. Hugh reasoned it out beautifully, I exclaimed in unfeigned admiration. It is so long a chain, and yet every link rings true. It saved me from ennui, he answered, yawning. Alas, I already feel it closing in upon me. My life is spent in one long effort to escape from the commonplaces of existence. These little problems help me to do so. And you are a benefactor of the race, said I. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, perhaps after all it is of some little use, he remarked. L'homme s'est rien, l'oeuvre s'est tout, as Gustave Flaubert wrote to George Sand. <laughs>